Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective, and our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, churches that sponsor Boy Scout troops and Cub Scout packs may be at risk for sexual abuse lawsuits, and we'll explain why. And we look at yet another former great Christian denomination that progressive ideologies have forced into significant decline. An update on the United Church of Christ later in the program. We begin today with news that Southern Baptists are still struggling with how to move forward in the face of sexual abuse scandals. Yeah, after a contentious five-hour meeting on Tuesday, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee called for a further week of deliberations with a special task force on sexual abuse after failing to agree on the ground rules for a third-party review that was commissioned to study the denomination handling of sexual abuse cases. What has been the primary sticking point? Well, at issue is whether the executive committee can shield certain communications uh, with its lawyers from Guidepost Solutions investigators. Guidepost Solutions is the organization that has been hired to look into sexual abuse claims and how the Southern Baptist Convention has handled them. Many of the executive committee's 86 members believe that they should be able to claim attorney-client privilege, while a majority of the task force wants the committee to waive all rights to confidentiality to ensure an honest accounting of the executive committee's actions over the past 20 years. A vote in closed section rejected a call to waive executive privilege, but that vote was not the final word, and that's what's led to the seven-day extension. I should add that the executive committee agreed to pay $1.6 million to Guidepost Solutions for this outside review. So what happens next? Well, as I said, deliberations continue, but I can tell you that social media completely lit up when the committee chose not to waive executive privilege. Uh, Sex abuse survivors and their advocates believe that this issue is important to determining whether the SBC is serious about a full accounting of sex abuse in the denomination. Waiving attorney-client privilege is a serious matter, but it is not unprecedented in such cases, and it's becoming obvious whether you are in favor or not in favor of waiving executive privilege. And by the way, I should state probably for the record that I am in favor of the executive committee waiving executive privilege. The decision will have huge implications on the process itself and on the credibility of the SBC and its investigation going forward. Our next story involves yet another liberal denomination facing decline. This time, it's the United Church of Christ. Yeah, the United Church of Christ was once an influential denomination in this country with membership in the millions. It produced many uh, political leaders and was a part of the founding or early development of a number of great universities in this country, including Oberlin College, which is where uh, Charles Finney was president for many years and it was one of the uh, colleges that was at the very beginning of the Second Great Awakening and Harvard Divinity School. 
but its ideological commitment to progressive causes, including LGBTQ issues and same-sex marriage, has led to a rush for the exits, you might say, within that denomination. The denomination, which, as I said, once numbered in the millions, now just has a few hundred thousand people in attendance every Sunday. And this week it announced it would be selling its denominational headquarters in Cleveland. Yeah, that's right. The denomination relocated uh, to Cleveland uh, back in 1990. It had previously been in New York in an effort to both reduce expenses and to locate closer uh, to where most of the congregations within that denomination are located. At the time of that relocation, about 30 years ago now, the national setting, which is what they call their national headquarters, had about 300 employees, and today that number is only about 100. It owns, though, a nine-story, 120,000-square-foot building that it bought originally to house all those employees. Now, though, it plans to sell that building for about $7 million. Um, Plans are in place to move the staff remaining to a single floor and an office building about a half mile away. Plus, they're going to rent a basement to store historical archive materials. Another group that has seen a dramatic decline in recent years is the Boy Scouts. And we've been covering the Boy Scouts of America over the past two years, in part because of the relationship the BSA has with churches. But this week comes news that this relationship is also deteriorating. Yeah, it's... uh a worsening situation with the BSA and especially um, their relationship with major religious groups uh, that help it run thousands of scout units. At issue here, Natasha, is the church fear that an eventual settlement in these sexual abuse lawsuits could leave many churches unprotected. The Boy Scouts sought bankruptcy protection back in February of 2020, about a year and a half ago, in an effort to halt lots of individual lawsuits. And since then, they've created this huge compensation fund for the thousands of men who said that they were molested as boys by scoutmasters or other scout leaders. And in fact, um, the national organization originally estimated that there would be about 5,000 cases, but there are now about 82,500 cases that are at at, uh, issue here. And we've previously reported that the settlement fund has about $1.8 billion, and it has been tentatively approved by the judge in this case. Yeah, it has. But uh, that $1.8 billion, which is a lot of money, still doesn't include any payments from or even negotiations with the thousands of churches and other organizations that charter scout units, with the exception of the Mormon church. The Mormon church was involved in that settlement, and they did kick in about $250 million. But now some of the victim groups uh, are saying that $1.8 billion is just simply not enough to fairly compensate the victims. And they've already signaled that going after individual churches could be a next step. And to use just one example, the United Methodist Church says that up to 5,000 of its U.S. congregations could be affected by future lawsuits. In total, 40,000 organizations, most of them churches, um, have charters with the BSA to sponsor scout units. Are most of those churches? 
Yeah, they, they are. Uh, the, the United Methodist Church and the Catholic Church are probably the most at risk here. Uh, between those two church bodies, they charter about 10,000 scout units. However, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, they all charter significant numbers of scout units. And all three of these religious bodies have advised their churches to hire legal counsel if they fear that possible sex abuse litigation is coming their way. Warren, these numbers sound significant and the warnings sound dire, but is there really a risk here? Are these victim groups really going to sue 40,000 churches and other chartering organizations? Well, it's a good question. uh, And I think the answer to that question is probably no, they're not going to file 40,000 lawsuits against 40,000 individual churches in this country. But they probably won't have to. Uh, They could easily just send demand letters to all of them and make examples of a few of them. And suddenly these churches would be lining up to make contributions to a settlement fund in order to avoid a lawsuit. So yeah, I think there's a very real risk here for local churches. And I think that's why the United Methodists have indeed issued a formal statement recommending that its congregations cut ties with the Scouts. Now, Warren, before we go to break and before we leave this story, there is yet another twist. Yeah, insurers have asked the judge in the bankruptcy case against the Boy Scouts of America to further investigate what they say are tens of thousands of fraudulent claims among the real claims of sex abuse filed against the Boy Scouts before sending out a settlement agreement to the claimants for a vote. Uh, Boy Scout insurer uh, Century Indemnity Company is asking U.S. bankruptcy judge uh, Laurie Selber Silverstein to determine how many of the tens of thousands of sexual abuse cases that have been filed are actually legitimate. Is this a big development or no? Well, the amount of money in the settlement is more or less fixed. That's already been agreed to. What it would impact would be the amount that goes to each individual. Uh, if 82,000 people are dividing up that $1.8 billion, that you know comes out to about thirty thousand dollars a person. Uh, if that number of if the number of people actually getting a piece of that pot goes way way down, the amount that each person gets goes way way up. Um, obviously, the fewer victims, the more money that each victim gets. But this development, while worth noting, is not likely to change the ultimate outcome, except perhaps around the edges. Well, Warren, we need to take a break here. When we return, we will look at an organization that helps high-capacity givers become more effective stewards. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. 
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, for the past couple of months, Ministry Watch has had a series of articles on how high-capacity givers give away their money. Often they use consultants and financial tools such as donor-advised funds to aid them. What's the latest in the series? Well, our Colorado Springs-based reporter, Steve Raby, has been writing that series for us. And this week, he features an organization called TrustBridge Global Foundation, which works to make direct global charitable giving common, pain-free, and inexpensive. Those are their words. And they've done that with a lot of donors. They've granted more than $65 million to international groups over the past three years. So the key here is international giving. Why is that important? Yeah, that's right. Well, TrustBridge is attempting to solve um, what, for some high-capacity givers, has been a big problem. Uh, For example, we'll often hear about a famine in Yemen. I mean, that's going on right now. Uh, Or an earthquake in Haiti, and we want to help. But how? The most conventional method is to give to an organization you trust here in the United States. Yeah, and that's not a bad solution. In fact, we recommend that here at Ministry Watch all the time. Give to an organization that you know and trust. There are a lot of great organizations right here in the United States that are working in far-flung parts of the world. But let's be honest, that's often not the most efficient way to give, even though it is safe and convenient. Lots of American relief organizations give grants to local partners on the ground in these countries. The American organizations serve a valuable function of vetting and managing those local partners, but they sometimes don't do much of the work themselves. You're basically paying them uh, to perform an administrative function. But what if you could give the money directly to those local groups overseas, the groups with boots on the ground, and still have the same level of confidence and trust that you had when you gave to an American organization? Well, that's what TrustBridge attempts to do. Uh, there's a lot more to say about how they uh, do what they do, and you can read about it uh, in Steve Raby's story, which is pretty comprehensive and I think is fascinating at ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, you also have a story about organizations that don't post their Form 990s. Can you tell us how that story came about? Yeah, well, first I should say, Natasha, that, uh, you know, Ministry Watch has been growing significantly over the past couple of years, including our database. We now have about a thousand ministries in our database, and we've kind of automated the process of updating Form 990s so that we have five to 10 updates in our database just about every business day of the week and of the year. One of the things that I was able to observe as we have automated this process is that um, there are are a number of organizations, perhaps 15 or 20, that have sort of quietly stopped filing their Form 990s. Uh, we haven't gotten an update from some of these ministries in four or five years. So I asked our reporter, Kim Roberts, to call these organizations and find out why. She did, and her report was both surprising in some areas, and in a few cases, I'll have to say, in fact, troubling. Uh, some of them told us directly that they didn't want the scrutiny of outsiders. And they just said they weren't going to give us the information that we were asking for. And they wouldn't even tell us why they wouldn't give us the information. Others said that they had legitimate religious liberty concerns and had had themselves reclassified as a church. Now, what organizations are we talking about? 
Well, one of them is called Messenger International. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, maybe the um, founders will. Their names are John and Lisa Bevere. They're they're pretty famous uh, speakers and writers. Um, They say they provide discipleship materials to Christians all around the world. The last set of financials that Ministry Watch was able to obtain for them uh, was in 2018, and they showed annual revenue of about $7 million, which is a fairly significant size organization. Even larger is Youth with a Missions San Diego Baja branch. Uh, The most recent financial information that Ministry Watch has from YWAM San Diego is 2016 five years ago, and they've grown into a very large organization with revenue now in the tens of millions of dollars. I think the one that caused me the most concern, though, was Terry Savelle Foy Ministries. They're located in North Texas. Uh, Terry Savelle Foy Ministries was founded in 2015, but hasn't released any revenue figures since 2017, and it refused our request for information, and it's not a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. So what do you recommend in cases like that? Well, we have long told donors that if an organization doesn't release its financials to the public, you shouldn't give money to them. In the case of YWAM, Youth with a Mission, I would say that's sort of a gray area. Uh, YWAM has been around a long time. I think in the mind of many, they're a pretty reputable organization. And in this case, they are in California where there have been some religious liberty issues. They claim the church exemption because they um, feel like that it's some of their donor information might be exposed, which has been an issue in California. Though I should also add that the law that caused that to be an issue was recently overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, they do, though, in the case of YWMY, the reason I say it's a gray area is that even though they're not, they've had themselves reclassified as a church and they don't release their form uh, 990s through the conventional ways, you can get them if you ask for them. So if you're a donor and you want to look at their financials, there is a way to get to them. You just have to ask them for it. Uh, but in the case of Terry Savelle Foy, I would say not so much. Um, not really a gray area there. We would recommend to donors that they withhold gifts to that organization and until it releases current financials to the public. Well, Warren, we've got a couple more related stories. First up, the story of a youth leader at a Utah church. Yeah, um, the, he was arrested on charges that he sexually abused a teenage boy who was a member of the congregation where he was a volunteer youth leader. Uh, this guy's name is Zachary Dale Park. He was in a position of trust over a 14-year-old uh, boy. The alleged victim um, said that they viewed pornography together with uh, on multiple occasions and that Park uh, Park, the youth leader, uh, touched him inappropriately. We don't need a lot of details on that story, Warren, but it does raise the issue of the liability that churches could face if they don't put child protection policies in place. Yeah, sex abuse is an unfortunate reality, and that's why our reporter Shannon Cuthrell took a close look at child protection policies in a story that we posted this week. She interviewed folks at the Evangelical Council for Abuse Protection, which is beta testing an accreditation program to help ministries create governance to oversee child safety operations, screen and train volunteers and staff, and follow the appropriate legal and reporting standards. Uh, The accreditation program was built off of a model developed by the Association of Christian Schools International, ACSI, 
Uh, ECAP also worked with the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, Brotherhood Mutual, Church Mutual, and other groups that have really excellent child protection policies already in place, including Trail Life USA and American Heritage Girls. So the purpose of these programs are to protect churches and ministries from liability. Well, yes, uh, they could help there. But of course, the main reason is to protect children uh, and other victims of sexual abuse. That should always be the number one priority. Clear child protection policies do, though, draw a bright line that tells adults what they can and cannot do, even well-meaning adults who are just not sure of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in working with a kid. You know, one example is being alone with a child. You've got a kid whose parents are late at a youth group to pick him up. Should you take that kid home? You know, if there's just one adult and one child in the car, is that appropriate or is that not appropriate? Uh, answering questions like that and the circumstances by which, uh, uh, you know, even the adults that are well-meaning should behave are really important. Knowing such policies empowers others to have clear guidelines regarding what they are observing as well. Uh, many of us tell ourselves that we would say something if we saw something that was wrong. We would speak up. Uh, but what if you're not sure if it's wrong? Uh, what if it's in that one of those gray areas? Clear policies tend to eliminate such gray areas. They protect children. They protect adults by keeping them out of questionable or inappropriate situations. And they do protect the church or the ministry. And by the way, Shannon's article is really in-depth and it gives a lot of great advice for church and ministry leaders, as well as uh, being full of links to other organizations that you can take a look at that might be helpful to you. I really recommend, again, uh, our listeners check out that article. Warren, we're going to take another quick break here, but when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, we're continuing our tour of states here at Ministry Watch. Uh, We're profiling the states that are headquarters to the most Ministry Watch 1000 ministries. Uh, This week, we feature my home state, North Carolina. We are not quite the powerhouse, Natasha, of your state. Colorado, but we are number five on the list. Ministries based in North Carolina take in more than $2 billion in annual revenue. Is there some history that causes North Carolina to be so high on the list? Well, there is, and that history, in fact, has a name, and his name is Billy Graham. Uh, Not only did uh, he found the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which is one of the largest ministries on the list, his son, 
Franklin Graham is the president of Samaritan's Purse, which is based in Boone, North Carolina, and that, in fact, is the number one ministry on our list of the largest ministries here in the state. I should also mention that my former employer and current collaborator, God's World Publications, which publishes World Magazine, is also headquartered here in North Carolina, up in Asheville. And I want to mention, if I could take a point of personal privilege here, that World is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. I'd like to offer my personal congratulations to Joel Bells, the founder, for being a mentor to me and for blazing a trail in Christian journalism that I now try to follow. And after taking a couple of weeks off, the ministry spotlight is back. Yeah, it is. And the spotlight this week is on the Four Corners Home for Children in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, It's a fascinating ministry that takes in about a million dollars a year and takes in a lot of kids. They care for children in the Four Corners region. Uh, Four Corners, for those of you that don't know your geography, is New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. A lot of Native American reservations are in that region, and they have a very vital ministry uh, in that part of the world. Who do you have in the Ministries Making a Difference column this week? Well, the Jesus Film Project recently released its Jesus Film in Persian Sign Language uh, with audio in Farsi and a woman on the right side of the screen translating the scenes into sign language. By the way, we have a screenshot of that. It's kind of a, if you've ever seen the Jesus film, it's kind of interesting to see a person standing to the side of that film uh, doing sign language. Uh, I recommend you check it out. The famous film has been released, by the way, in more than 1,900 translations so far, but this new release is part of what's called Mission 865, which is an initiative to uh, complete 865 translations in minority languages by the year 2025. And since I mentioned Billy Graham and North Carolina just a few minutes ago, I should add that they do much more than evangelistic crusades. Uh, The Billy Graham Rapid Response Team, for example, has deployed crisis-trained chaplains to the site of a mass shooting this past week. On Thursday, a gunman in Collierville, Tennessee, opened fire, killing one person and injuring 14 others at a Kroger's store, um, Billy Graham was on the scene with chaplains to provide emotional and spiritual support. And finally, Compassion International is engaged in a huge initiative right now. It's called the Fill the Stadium Campaign. They want to provide food, medical care, and support to impoverished children worldwide. They're trying to raise enough funds to help 70,000 children in crisis, which is enough to fill an average NFL football stadium. They've raised already $32 million uh, for this effort, and they're getting help from some sports stars. Elisa Nair, who is was, was on the U.S. Olympic women's soccer team, Adam Engel of the Chicago White Sox, and Sam Burns, who is a PGA Tour golfer. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, just a reminder, uh, Natasha, that there's a quick, f- easy, and free way, I should add, for you to support this podcast, and that is simply to give us a rating on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the more attention we get from search engines, and that helps new listeners to find us. And by the way, when you give us a rating, leave a comment as well. I read them all. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Anne Stike, Kim Roberts, Steve Raby, Jeffrey Walton, Bob Smetania, 
Rod Pritzer, and David Crary. And special thanks to the Institute on Religion and Democracy for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.